Okay, here we go. Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. Auspicious interbeing to you and yours, my friends, and Quindos Hermes, I'm joined by two very special guests, two people that I had so much fun talking to and felt so much resonance with and then sensed a resonance between them. Two former guests, a neuroscientist and a philosopher, who have come to talk about... We're going to start with an idea of reality shock. And the theme is, at first, is going to be if people only knew, if there are things that the culture keeps us away from, the kind of metaphysical policing that happens through our education, and it doesn't matter what we may think personally, the culture infuses us with ideas that we cannot so easily free ourselves from. And then we have a kind of deeper human ignorance problem that the wisdom traditions talk about both. They talk about both, the cultural and the kind of, you could say, personal. And so my guests, in order of their prior appearance, not in order of their importance, which is mutual, our first uh, guest is Sharon Hewitt-Rollett, who is a philosopher and interdisciplinary researcher specializing in anomalous phenomena and their implications for our understanding of consciousness. She earned her PhD from New York University in 2008. She studied under Thomas Nagel, very venerable American professor of philosophy. She taught at Brandeis. And then she left academia for an independent writing career. She is sort of like Nietzsche in that way. She currently serves on the advisory board of the Bigelow Institute for Consciousness Studies and is a supporting researcher for the International Center for Reincarnation Research. Her books include The Source and Significance of Coincidences, Beyond Death, and The Feeling of Value. And we'll have links for Sharon's work uh, on the, in the show notes. The second guest is Mona Sobani. She is a cognitive neuroscientist, an author, and entrepreneur, a former research scientist at the University of Southern California. She holds a doctorate in neuroscience from USC and completed a postdoctoral fellowship at Vanderbilt University with the MacArthur Foundation Law and Neuroscience Project. She is the author of Proof of Spiritual Phenomena, a neuroscientist's discovery of the ineffable mysteries of the universe. We talked about that book when uh, Mona visited, and this is just a few episodes ago. I'll put that in the show notes. Both uh, I'll reference both episodes. I don't remember the numbers right now. Mona's work has been featured in the New York Times, Vox, and other media outlets. She lives in Los Angeles, a place I used to call home. Welcome, Mona and Sharon. Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, my friends, Wisdom Sisters. Hi, thanks for having us. <laughs> yes, thanks, Nikos. Yeah, it's great. So, we have talked about this idea of if people only knew. I think it's really, because I've had to read a lot of the literature that you two have read and have been happy to read your work as well. And you read sometimes read these things and you think, my goodness, if people only knew, like if you if they only knew that there's evidence for these things. And it's not just, you know, shrouded in ifs and maybe and no, not really, but there's really good work being done and really good evidence, both anecdotally and experimentally. And so maybe we could start there, and it could be, but this is really open-ended. But if you could think of, maybe to begin with, something that you thought, wow, if people only knew this, it really might begin to change the way they think about themselves and the world, and maybe it would just shift 
in a deeper way our sense of what reality is, and then maybe help us get out of the crazy. Because if we had a shifted view of reality, since that's integral to the pattern of insanity, then maybe if we could shift that view of reality, we could begin to shift the way people relate to themselves, each other, and the world. So can, can we start with the neuroscientist? Because it's a science-dominated culture, Sharon. Come on, we're backseat here. Even though you guys are the servants of philosophy, nevertheless, we'll acknowledge the context. Well, I'd love to see you say that in a room full of neuroscientists and watch the reaction. Um, yeah, I, I think for me, when you, when you pose the question or what I think of my journey and what, you know, what were kind of like the big shocks, um, the things that jolted me out of my old worldview. One of them was how we are more intricately connected with our physical environment. I mean, the universe more broadly, but I think one thing that I remember when I was reading Dean Radin's book, uh, Real Magic, um, which is a great book. He, and he, you know, so easily lays out a lot of the intention, science, all the experiments that have gone into, um, you know, seeing how human intention affects mood, behavior, um, the physical environment, etc. So he, I was reading the book and I remember thinking like I was almost done with it. And I thought, oh my gosh, if this is true, um, the precise thought I had was, wow, I'm going around spewing out, first of all, unintentionally, I have no intentions whatsoever. (laughs) Um, I'm just living, you know, like not thinking unconsciously. And then secondly, like I was just spewing at that point, because this was during my transformation, like I was just spewing a lot of like negative energy um, all the time. (laughs) And so I, when I was reading his book, I became very consciously aware of that and started um, making an effort to, to think, okay, if this is true, which, you know, I went to read the, the papers that he cited and it looked like the science was good which I was still having a hard time wrapping my mind around, but I was in that phase of let's just, okay, let's say it's true. Let me just suspend my beliefs. Um, and I was like, okay, if this is true, then I'm living dangerously in a way. Like, of course, but then no wonder um, I have all this negativity coming at me because that's all I'm, that's all I'm spewing out. And then suddenly um, I, that's when I was already, uh, you know, starting to think about, my personal journey and like, Oh, maybe I should see a therapist or, you know, I should start looking into handling and regulating my emotions. Um, but then that really drove it home. That really was like, wow, not only is it important for me just personally for my life to understand what's happening with me internally, but you know, it's actually, it could actually be affecting my physical environment, the people around me, um, everyone I interact with, just everything. So, and then I thought like how the rest of the world kind of lives like how I was living and we're all just like these balls just bouncing around <laughs> interacting with each other with no conscious intent. And so I, I actually still think about that a lot. Um, and that was one of the reasons when I wrote my book, I wanted people to be aware that um, like for them to start to be aware, it takes a while to integrate it, I think, into your life because you forget uh, and you get sidetracked and it's really hard to understand your emotions and yourself and regulate them. So it's like a long process, but, um, and it's actually hard for people to understand intention. I found that as I would tell my friends about experiments or, uh, try to, you know, relay these findings and these insights that I had, 
a lot of them are like, well, what does that mean? And you'd be like, well, you know, like when you intend to do something, what does that feel like? And, uh, you know, just extrapolating that to, to, to more things in your life, like daily things or weekly things or, or modes of behavior. So I think explaining it took a while. It, so it takes a while for people to kind of understand the concept, but I think for me, that was a really big one. Mm, that's right. It's so, it's funny that you picked that one because philosophers have, and this is where the neuroscientists really need us in a way, um, that philosophers have struggled with this issue to try to help people understand that human beings do not know how to intend very well. It's a central teaching. Uh, Socrates was clear about this. Buddha was exceptionally clear about it, in fact. And they all agree that, that, that skillful and realistic intention is part of the realization of wisdom, love, and beauty in the world. Even Kant agreed on this in his own way. But, but the philosophers are clear that we don't know how to intend, and that when you say that it takes time to integrate this, that's what the path of philosophy is, is to shift you so that you understand that your intention matters in the world in ways you cannot conceive very easily, and that it takes practice to intend in a good way, a truly good way. And the, but if you do it, this is the source of real magic in the world, that you can really become a field of goodness, you know. Sometimes the, the, in the Eastern tradition, you have the idea of the Buddha field, which is like a two, it means two things. It's sort of like a field like a garden, but also a field like an energy, like a gravitational field. And in a Buddha field, then good things happen around that Buddha field, because it's like a gravitational energy of goodness, of wisdom, love, and beauty. And so we can become like that. And it's really powerful thing. So I don't know what you're, you must be thinking of this because there's also so much conceptual work. Sharon must be thinking about, oh, yeah, you tell me intention. <laughs> Come on. How many philosophers are pouring? Well, I'm, this? I'm writing a book actually right now about intentions effect on the physical world and trying to, uh, to conceptualize this theoretically. And I'm actually, I was going to say it was kind of a coincidence that you mentioning Dean Radin's book, Mona, because uh, right now I'm on this chapter where I'm trying to succinctly summarize the evidence for the effective intention. I was like, you know, what are some sources where I can send people to? And it's like, it's already all collected there for them. They can just go read it. And I hadn't thought of that book, but that is an excellent uh, place to send people. So I appreciate that. That really helped me with what I was working on today. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, I think this is absolutely crucial. And what, I definitely saw in all the research that I did on coincidence and synchronicity, how this plays out in people's lives, how your not, not only your intentions, but even just your thoughts and your beliefs, your daydreams, your imaginings, those things affect what, what comes to you, what takes form around you. And one of the, um, things that I suggest in at the end of my book on coincidences is that people start thinking about their waking life a little bit more like a dream. Because most of us, if we pay attention to our dreaming, that those of us who are lucky enough to be able to remember our dreams, um, if we pay attention to our dreams, you can tell in there, you can see the connection between when a thought pops into your mind in a dream, and then suddenly the thing happens in front of you. So you, you like, it occurs to you that, you know, this person might show up and then in the dream, it'll happen a second later, that person will be in front of you. And so in waking life, it doesn't happen that fast, but it's really interesting if you start looking at waking life that way, because you'll see that, yeah, it may not happen in the next second, 
But over the course of the next few days, you know, these things that you've been thinking about will make their appearance in your life. And it really, it, it really made me ask some deep questions about well, what is, what is the nature of the reality that we're living in? Then if, if it operates so much like a dream, and, and I don't have an answer to that yet. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to work my way toward an answer, but I, but I think it's a fascinating question that most people, that in our culture, we're not really allowed to have, we're not allowed to have a cultural conversation about this. Um, you can have it, you know, in your little, you know, maybe corner of new age religiosity over here, but we can't have it with all of the power of the scientific evidence, all the power of these religious and philosophical traditions that have actually spoken to this. You know, we're, we're starting to develop that conversation, but there's so much more that we could be doing if people felt free to talk about this in a, in a mainstream setting. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's so big, because, of course, right away, one of the things this links to the idea that intention needs to be trained. In the Buddhist uh, tradition, as it went into Tibet, they developed something called lojong, which is mind training, literally. And this is, of course, natural. You could say all philosophy is mind training, but they just decided to call this particular stream of teaching lojong mind training. And all the different schools of Tibetan Buddhism adopt it. So it is something that is kind of universally embraced. And it uses something that you find across uh, spiritual and philosophical traditions, the use of, of crystallizations of wisdom. And w famously, we find this, of course, in Marcus Aurelius. He's working with these slogans. You know, when you read the meditations, he's talking about, how can I get my thinking the right way? And so he's writing down things to help him train his mind. And so the, the uh, Lojong tradition organized a, 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 a group of slogans that help you to train your mind. And you work with these slogans. Each one is given to you by the teacher who then elaborates how to work with it. And then you go out and you, in your meditation, you're working with it in your daily life. It's meant to be like a daily life thing. And one of the slogans is, treat all dharmas as dreamlike. And dharmas has multiple meanings in the Buddhist philosophical tradition, but one of the meanings is all things. Everything that appears, treat it as dreamlike, so that you begin to erase this strong duality you're making between waking and dreaming, and you begin to understand that your mind in dream functions very much like your... It's basically the same kind of thing, it's just that there aren't external perceptual stimuli. And so this is very, you know, taken to be a very powerful way to understand that you have to shift. And they too would say, well, it's, in, you know, where, the, where that goes, it, it becomes increasingly inconceivable. But of course, in the Tibetan tradition, there, there are many streams that are very committed to a rational epistemological description of this. So they've done extraordinarily rigorous epistemological work on it, like Dharmakirti and Chandrakirti and these, uh, these, these critics of, our, you know, are kind of, um, our naive view of things, you could say the kind of ignorance view. But anyway, this is really powerful. And I will mention here, too, that Dean Kate was on the, on the podcast, too, and we talked about what I thought were some of the more powerful ones, because at the time, the uh, Nobel Prize had just gone out to the physicists who had worked on, the, uh, on Bell's theorem. And, uh, and so I thought that, in a way, Dean's work should have been nominated because he does a quantum experiment using just your intention and your ability to send the mind. And it's remarkable. So anybody who wants, we, dis we discuss that. And uh, it's beautiful, beautiful. And his book, Real Magic, is really good. I've only been able to skim it, but it's really a great summary of a lot of stuff. Okay, well, let me turn this over. Now that we have to go, like, but, but do you have any response to, to <laughs> what Sharon was saying, Mona? <laughs> Um, 
No, I just agree. Okay. <laughs> no, that's good. <laughs> well, I wanted to. I wanted to say that one of the first things that occurred to me when you said, you know, if people only knew was in reading Mona's book, um, I felt like so a large part of her book, um, at least the first part, is her interviewing various scientists that she knows about these, you know, non-mainstream ideas, these cyber-related phenomena. And it was so striking to me, as I know it was to her, because she said it in the book, uh, that so many of them were open to this, at least privately. A lot of them weren't willing, you know, to write articles about it, weren't willing to talk about it, you know, on a stage at a conference. But in private, they were willing to say, yeah, I think this is really intriguing. Or, you know, I think that the evidence is there. Or, yes, I use this in my own private life to help me in making decisions. And I feel like if people only knew how many of these scientists in private actually think these things, it would just completely change the way that we think the way that we think about how our world works. Yeah, and it goes all together with the political thing too, right? I mean, this is also how it works in politics, is that you you think that the view that you have is is too crazy to talk about in public. Like, well, I actually do think that women should have the right to choose, but, you know, I'm a Republican. and, and But meanwhile, like the polls, if you can get people to talk, well, okay, it turns out the majority have a, a view different than what we see in the laws. And it's, it's very typical that, that if, if the interests of the structures of power conflict with people's personal views, the structures of power are going to win out. And that doesn't matter if, it's, if we say science or we say politics because these things are interwoven, but it is a, it's almost like a strategy of keeping us domesticated, that we have to think that, well, that's too crazy for me to say in public. And the university system in that sense is protecting people from reality. It's protecting people from philosophy and from views that would challenge what what keeps the pattern of insanity going. So it's like a deep thing. I think it's really important. I always come back to the way the ways that scientists have to recognize that they are helping create the problems that we see, even through these subtle things. And doesn't it get it? What well that we matter. You matter if you are not willing to talk about it in public. That's going to actually have a, a negative impact that you don't really understand. You don't really see. But maybe you could say more about that, Mona. Yeah. Um, oh, I love that you brought that up. Cause I, yes, to- definitely. Because what I found when I was interviewing them was I found that I was actually way more closed off than they were. <laughs> like as I continued interviewing everyone, I was like, why is everyone so open? I mean, again, they wouldn't talk about this in, in, in public probably. And these were like Zoom conversations, you know, in private during COVID when we were all like... <laughs> losing our minds and bored and just wanted to talk about anything. But, um, but I think that, that I started to realize that I was at the extreme end of disbelief. Um, and I think I mentioned that a little bit in the book, but just because like when I spoke to one of my dissertation advisors, who's, you know, someone way older experienced, someone I respect so much. And she was like, well, some things are just a mystery. And I was like, what? <laughs> Is that an option? <laughs> Can we say that? Um, and she was so nonchalant about it. And she was like, yeah. And she's like, a lot of scientists are spiritual and religious. And I was like, like who? <laughs> but she gave me examples from our program. And I was like, okay, I guess I just didn't know. And, and it is that thing of where you kind of project your beliefs onto the world. And I mm-hmm. thought, oh, I'm, I'm such a just, you know, I was, didn't believe or um, was disenchanted. And I just assumed that everyone else was like that. Um, and then that was 
that belief is propagated by the fact that we never talk about these things in any setting, not in social settings when we were together and definitely not in the workplace. So it never came up. So, you know, that belief had never had a chance to be knocked until I <laughs> made a point of interviewing my colleagues yeah. about it. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> well, it's like the sheep and goat uh, distinction too, that, um, you know, if you, if you stay, if you just stay away from the phenomena, then it, they can't come knocking. And uh, it, it it really does. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes they still come knocking. But... They, sometimes they do. <laughs> You're right, but it's certainly there is a self. There is an immune system in the university yeah. as there is in the larger political milieu. This kind of it just keeps at bay the thing that would be too disturbing. When it does come knocking, then what you're tempted to do sometimes is to say that it was noise. Or, I mean, this happened very. I I, think, I don't know if, if one of us discuss, one of you discussed it with me when we, Michael Shermer's famous, you know, the, the famous skeptic. Oh, Did his you, radio experience. Yes. Right. Oh, yeah. And so at first he it was like, hey, I might be one of the converted. And then he walked it back. Right. Because the skeptical community, which is I think maybe Mona, you've written about this. Or I know that Elizabeth Lloyd Mayer wrote about this, too, about how that is really a kind of militant community. And then you, you have people in academia who are like the real bulldogs, right, who are supposed to keep these things away. We're supposed to think that everybody in academia is like Richard Dawkins and, and, and Dan Dennett. You know, like Dan Dennett is, you know, he's a respected philosopher. I mean, the guy looks like Socrates for crying out loud, right? And uh, it, we're supposed to believe that, you know, he's got the rational view. It's really tricky because, uh, you know, I think all philosophers and, and scientists are fans of reason. and then, But when reason becomes co-opted into spiritual materialism and becomes something that keeps dogmatism going r rather than inquiry, then you see what happens in our culture. I think that contributes, too, to the crisis of truth and to this, like, we have to retreat to the other side, that it's either I will use reason or I have to use some other thing that we can't talk about and we don't understand. And we, we lose our holism, I think, as part of this, too. It also, it doesn't help that in science that um, <laughs> that nobody, that um, the background of philosophy is never even discussed because it, because then when you start talking about these anomalous data points, you almost have to back up to be like, well, did you know that science is based on scientific materialism, which is one of many possible worldviews and philosophies? And then, like, I didn't know anything about that. So when I started reading that, I had to, I mean, that was like a whole thing I had to wrap my head around and get into philosophy. And I used to really hate philosophy. And I was like, oh, God, why do I have to read this? But um, you have to <laughs> understand you have to understand that first. And so it's like, that's like an old, and that's a big barrier because we never touched that. I didn't even know that was a thing. Like I didn't even know there were po yeah, possible world. I didn't even know any of that. And so most of, most scientists are like that because they just, you don't get trained in that. You never take a philosophy mm -hmm. course and it's there, to, in the, it's invisible in the background. And so they, they think they're coming to the argument thinking you're having an argument within, under the umbrella of scientific materialism. And you're like, no, actually <laughs> we have to throw the umbrella away and have a conversation in the rain and they're like what oh so, yeah naked yeah. in the rain yeah i mean it's it's funny because i was surprised that dean radin 
said the, the same. When I asked him, you know, well, what do you think we, we can do to, tr to try to help this shift, you know, really get a paradigm shift? He said, I think that everybody, all the scientists need to take a philosophy course. And yeah. I thought maybe he's just being nice to the philosopher that, who's interviewing him. But he, that's how he closed the interview by saying, you, you need to understand that these are philosophical things, which that's why it is true to say that science is still, you know, I, the, the, the phrasing handmaiden is not a good one, but it's still the servant, ultimately, of some philosophy. And the scientists not realizing that then don't understand that they, can, they too have to work on their intentions. Because even like the intention of knowledge for, for its own sake is actually not a skillful intention. There, I don't think philosophers would agree on that because we've divorced knowledge and wisdom. So therefore, the, the scientists must realize that their intention has to be furthering the conditions of life. And it has to be taking good care of the world and becoming the best version of themselves, so to speak. Uh, that, that these are the kinds of intentions you have to have, not to get a, a career, not to get tenure, not to find out something. That's not sufficient for the world to survive, that we are going to have art for art's sake, knowledge for knowledge's sake, doesn't work. We all have to be furthering the conditions of life. And so this problem of intention, too, is there for the scientist as a human being and therefore as a scientist. What do you think, Sharon? Why do we have such a bad rap? Why don't they take our classes? I have views on this, but... <laughs> Why are I'm not sure I'm going to venture uh, an answer to that question, <laughs> but I do I do want to say that I find philosophy of science fascinating. I I learned a little bit about it as an undergrad. I didn't really do it um, in graduate school, but now in the in the writing that I'm doing, I'm coming back to and reading a lot more philosophy of science because really when you I mean, they're they're the field where they've looked at these assumptions that that stand behind all of the conclusions that we draw from the scientific data. Excuse me, um, and and so when you when you look at the debates that are happening over you know whether it's foundations of quantum mechanics, um, but that's probably where a lot of the energy is going now. But but there's so many other debates. Um, that have similar issues. So you can take the same data and you can interpret it in so many different ways. You can have so many interpretations of it based on what assumptions you're bringing to the table. And I think philosophy of science is really good at bringing that out. Now, philosophers are also really good because, because they want to nail down all of those assumptions. It can get really time consuming to, and tedious to read philosophy because they spell everything out that just constantly making everything as explicit as possible. And so, yeah, it can be hard work trying to get through uh, technical philosophy papers. But I think that's, that's where so much of the value lies is because they don't, they're not willing to just take things for granted. They want to say, okay, where did that premise come from? Where, where are the governing assumptions there? And also philosophers of science tend to be much more aware of the history of science. And they've seen how the various, um, you know, paradigm shifts have come about and also um, also the paradigm shifts that didn't come about because there are you know, there are, we can see now, you know, there were evidence there was evidence for certain kinds of um, uh, aspects of biological evolution or certain, you know, different theories in physics, the evidence was there in various subtle ways, you know, for hundreds of years, but it didn't fit with, you know, how science was developing at that time. So you just kind of, you know, put those, put those things off to the side. And then it's, you know, today, once we have 
a group of scientists who are willing to look at that data and willing to try to bring it back into the mainstream, try to integrate it with the other things that we know, try to give us a new overall theory in which that fits together with all this other stuff, then we're willing to accept, oh, yeah, that data really did exist. Uh, yeah, so, but- so, yeah, the, the awareness of all of that history and, and all of the assumptions that go into the, the doing of science, I think, is is vital. Yeah. I think it's really um, interesting to look. I, I love, I, I think I, with one of you, I brought up Hasek Chang's work because it's so interesting how he critiques the shift from the phlogiston theory to oxygen. And he says, you know, really, really was the evidence that much better? I mean, he really finds this to be a, 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 a dubious shift in the history of science. And he, he th- thinks that, I mean, he makes the suggestion that we could have shot ourselves in the foot and that we might, we might be decades further advanced in science if we had just kept working with the phlogiston theory, which, you know, every high school chemistry student learns that this was stupid. And, but it's really interesting to, to find that history. And even the scientific method, the fact that when you go into, because that's where I started out in philosophy of science, because I thought I wanted to go into the sciences, but then I took a course in philosophy and thought, oh my gosh, because I didn't know what philosophy was. And so as a freshman, I said, no, no, this is this is the thing. But because of the, the culture, my mindset at the time was, well, if I want to know reality, then I have to do philosophy of science. You have to bring the wisdom with what we know about reality empirically. But then you find out that the, even the notion of the scientific method that you're taught in high school and then it gets reiterated in college is, is also dubious, that it, you can't really establish. You have this demarcation problem even that, that the philosophers of science worry about. How do we demarcate pseudoscience, which some of the things that you two talk about and I, I also talk about, we get, we get that accusation that's pseudoscience. But the demarcation problem says, yes, but it's not so easy to tell what's real science and what's not. And then when the, when the scientists try to do their very best work, they're still written off. But meanwhile, from a philosophical viewpoint, the philosophers are saying, yes, but we can't even find a theory of science that puts quantum physics and Darwinian evolution on the same footing in, in terms of demarcating what is science and what isn't. Right? Because how do you run experiments? You know, I mean, Darwin didn't establish the thing by running an experimental protocol. It, it, he, did, he used other methods. And so there's just so much that we don't understand. But I, I do think it can be conveyed in more interesting ways, too. It's not even that you have to get to the most technical things. But if people would just understand what we began with, that both of you were talking about, well, I have to live my life differently if reality is different than I thought. And an 18-year-old who wants to become a neuroscientist or a physicist could be told that, that their intentions matter in the world. That would, that would already be like, without getting into the technical papers, you know, could we just say that, hey, we live in a world where how we're being with each other matters. What do you think about all these things? Mona? <laughs> well, actually, it was, um, you sparked another thought for me. This isn't like specifically about anomalous um, uh phenomena or anything but in science another thing and i sort of write about it in my book but i didn't i thought this was getting too much into the details of of like the scientific method i thought people get bored but a lot of um a lot of our actual normal science without going into anything anomalous is is already how should i put this um 
<laughs> like if you, I did write this in the book, if you make a few different choices in your experiment, your outcome can, can, can change dramatically. And like we make a lot of assumptions about our experiments, we make a lot of choices in our experimental designs. Um, and the way that we know this is because a lot of times when other scientists go to replicate your work and they, you know, they think they're doing it exactly the same, but let's say they run the experiment at a different time of day or something and they get drastically different results, it, it, it turns out there was some variable no one thought of or controlled for that affected, right, the, the effect. And so <clears throat> sometimes when uh, my scientist colleagues and I get together and talk about this stuff, which is not very often, <laughs> but when it happens, um, you know, we talk about it's like, first of all, we, we all we know in quantum mechanics, but also just in regular science, um, when you observe something, you change it. And when people come in for an experiment, it's like not a very relaxing environment. You know, it's like you have all these scientists, you know, giving you all these this paperwork and we, we don't wear lab coats if it's a human experiment. But, you know, there's still an era of authority. They come into this. Oh, my God. One of our sets of experiments were done in the basement of a lab um, of a building at USC. So it's like dark. There's no you know, it's like depressing in there. So it's already not a natural environment. Um, and we still pretend <laughs> that the behaviors that we're observing are natural and, um, and representative of what would happen yeah. anywhere in the world and, at any time. <laughs> yeah. But the truth is that, you know, from a science perspective, you're only ever going to find strong effects, which is, you know, like if you're doing stats on it, you're only going to find strong effects that are not washed out by all those little variables. Um, but anything that's affected by any of those things, like time of day or the gender of the person and you're in interacting with, like we don't control for all of those things all the time, you know, because it's impossible. You would never run an experiment. Um, but so any effects that are affected by those little things, um, they wash out and we don't know about them. So we only know about the really big, strong effects in science. Um, so we're missing a lot. Anyone well, who they're, really si they're really simple effects because the ones that right. you see strongly in the lab are the ones that are very simple. They don't have a lot of variables that are interconnected. Right, like right? the network effects. Yeah. yeah, you miss those network effects. There are lots yeah. of variants. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. So just from, yeah, from a basic scientific method standpoint, we're already missing a lot. We do not have a clear picture, even though scientists like to pretend that we do, but we don't. I mean, that these these experiments are so unnaturalistic, especially fMRI ones. Have you ever been inside an MRI machine? It's horrible. <laughs> it's like claustrophobic. It's loud. It's uncomfortable. I, I used to get, um, I would do volunteer for my friend's experiments uh, reluctantly just so we could, we would all do it for each other. And it was terrible. And, and I remember being in there and being like, I can't believe we, yeah, we, we think these results are going to extrapolate out. If it's basic perception, yes, sure. But when you get to higher level cognitive behavioral things, like it's kind of silly. Yeah, and there too, it's quite a testament to the people, again, this idea of mind training, that they, when they put these advanced practitioners in these scanners, they still get the strong effects because they're, they have such skilled minds that we, then we don't, we're not really asking, well, what would it mean if we, trained our, if we all trained our minds? But then there's that deeper thing that you're pointing out, that in a way our science is primitive because it's always trying to isolate variables. But if we are relational beings living in a relational cosmos, if it's a, if relationality all the way down, then we, we are like basically monkeys, you know, in, in, a, in a library. You know, it's Jeff Kripal, he was saying, he was using William James's image, that we're like cats in a library. We think we know what we're doing, but meanwhile, we can't even read the books that are around <laughs> us. And, and so, you know, we, we, we think we're 
we're so advanced, but it might be very primitive. And that if mind is ecological, we really have to ask about the ecology of mind of the of the scientists themselves, quote unquote, as individuals, you know, and then as a group. Because when this, I, I often make this critique that when the division happened, when we separated knowledge and wisdom, which was not originally the way. I mean, Socrates kind of tells us that well, wisdom is knowledge, but by the time you get to the what we call the age of enlightenment, the age of reason, and and the, the birth of what we call science, we've said no, forget it. Scientists don't have to be wise to do anything. So they don't need this mind training. They don't need love and compassion and anything like that. No, they just they can get knowledge. And you know, we it's we could, you want to know about something? Go and kill it and cut it open. And this is this is this division happens. And so now, if we're going to repair that, we will have to ask. I think about what are the subtle effects? What if all the scientists in the lab had compassion training? And related to each other in truly kind and compassionate ways. And what if they had dialogue where it wasn't just sending information to each other, but it was about kind of shifting the state of consciousness and seeing what came out? What if they talked about their dreams together? You're talking about dreaming, right? What if they said, well, let's, let's treat the lab as dreamlike. And what, what did you dream about? Maybe that should drive what we do today. All those things would be very subtle. And your initial thought might be, well, nothing really is going to happen. But if you put them all together, what would science look like? Better? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I hope. I, it might be nicer, you know. It certainly might be nicer. I mean, it's really funny, too, that I, that I met a philosopher of science, and he had been teaching in a philosophy department, you know, and, and he said, well, I, I got a grant to go, and I was going to go to these different labs and interview the scientists there, and I was really looking forward to it because, you know, wow, I'm going to be with the people who are just so empiricist, and this is going to be great. And I'm going to be done with these philosophers, you know. And uh, so then he goes out and he goes to one lab and the guy confesses, says, well, you know, actually, this line of research isn't really going to go anywhere, but we, it, it's what gets us funding. So, you know, we got to keep doing it. You know? <laughs> we don't believe in it. We don't really think it's useful. And then somebody else said, well, you know, we're, we're, not, we're not sure about these results, but we're going to publish them anyway because we need oh, to. That goes and, on all the time. Yeah. And, you know, just all the crazy things like, well, well yeah, so and so, uh, you know, they can't go to a conference anymore because they used to be romantically involved with the person who organized that conference. And so now they can't go. I mean, these weird things. That are- yeah, actually, you raise a good I, I jotted down this note the other day when I was meditating. I was thinking about um, how I was thinking about how I was talking about this with Sharon, too, when we spoke um, earlier of how you lose yourself, right? When you get trained in science. Like I, 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 I wrote a little bit about this in the book, but not really, but like it was part of my whole journey of realizing how much of myself I discarded all the different parts of myself to become a scientist and to fit in into the, um, into academia. And um, like, I used to read fiction a lot and like first year, second year of grad school, I was always walking around reading a book and it would be like, you know, Sherlock Holmes or something, whatever, just literature. Um, and I would get made fun of <laughs> by my classmates. Uh, and then I, you know, I liked to dress up um, and that was always pointed out and whatever. So it was like all these little things that eventually by the time, six years, you know, in getting my PhD, by the end of it, I was totally different because I was like, oh, okay, not bringing my, not reading fiction anymore and definitely not taking it into the lab and maybe I should tone down the colors I wear so people stop commenting on my clothes and all this stuff and you like lose all these um 
parts of yourself. And I remember uh, the, the thought that I wrote down while I was meditating was like, what if we, and not just for science, but I thought of it obviously in the context of science was like, what if we, when you go into some field of training, if there was some effort to remind people that they should stay true to themselves, that like they're going to encounter a lot of things, you know, in this training, like medicine would be another good example. Like you're going to encounter a lot of things in this training. Like you're going to encounter some people who may have had trauma in their past. They're going to treat you poorly, but it's important. You know what I mean? To like know your values. Do you want to be like that? Are these the behaviors you want to, um, uh, a copy, you know, or absorb, um, and kind of like setting a foundation for you before you go through this journey, um, I think would be helpful. Uh, and it just reminded me too, when you were talking about that, I'm like, I would love to see an experiment <laughs> between experimenters and the people, the participants who come in between like, uh, scientists who've actually had work get, you know, going back to themselves, like self-actualizing, versus those who haven't and seeing how that affects the outcomes of each experiment because how you interact with at least in human subject research you know how you interact with participants um we all know it's like it affects things very strongly and you can't control for it um all the time well this is the great revolution in philosophy that has been echoed in science but it's why gregory Bateson was saying that our education is obsolete and it's a ripoff because the philosophers have said that what we know depends on how we come to know it and that means you know, plato's very clear he says look what knowledge depends on the knower who are you talking about if you don't train yourself train the mind train the heart to become the kind of person who can know certain things, you just can't know them. Well, you don't care what your tools are or your techniques are. You have to be a certain kind of person to come to know certain kinds of things. And if we don't do that training, then we will close ourselves off. And so it's a tricky situation. I don't know. Did you experience that, Sharon? As uh, what, what, To what degree did you feel that philosophy tried to, like, control you? Um. Well, see, the thing is that it's not... It's not a conspiracy. It's not any one person. At least I didn't feel like it was. I didn't feel like there was any one, you know, person or group of people who was particularly oppressive or anything. But I think one of the big reasons that I left academia was that I felt like I couldn't be myself there. And I couldn't. Uh, it was part of, of being myself, but also not being able to study things in the way that I wanted to study them, because I was very interested in what was mysterious, what was, what we didn't know. I was interested in, uh, in philosophy, at least analytic philosophy, uh, which is what I was trained in. There's a heavy emphasis on like structured arguments. So like, here are the premises, here is the conclusion. Now let's debate, you know, whether this is a sound argument, whether the premises are true. Um, and for me, that kind of work was much less interesting than the kind of work that said, okay, what are some other premises that we could start with? Like, what are some completely different ways that we could have of conceptualizing the world? Like, let's get creative and just like think of, of, of totally different theories that nobody's even talking about. And, and we don't have to say, okay, well, because like the, the, 
the expectation within analytic philosophy would be, okay, if you want to have that grand theory, well, now give me an argument for why I should believe that theory instead of mine. If you don't have an argument, then what you're saying isn't interesting. And, and I just didn't see that at all. I thought, well, the fact that there is this completely different, fully consistent viewpoint is itself very interesting. I don't have to say that it's better than the one that we have or, or anything. I don't have to get you from where you are to believing in this other thing, but let's just explore. And and that was just something that was not rewarded in, that, that was not the norm um, within the philosophical community. And I was just like, you know, I'm just going to go, I can do this, you know, in creative writing. I can do this in just, you know, writing for popular publications, I can be much more exploratory. And so, and that has really worked for me. I felt very much like I can just, I can follow the, the intellectual and spiritual call where it leads me instead of feeling like I have to narrow it down into a particular box to be able to be published and get tenure and all that yeah, it's really difficult. I mean, this this goes to well. For one thing, I just want to acknowledge that you don't have to have if you have converging interests, you you have a, a functioning conspiracy, right? I mean, it's the same way that Noam Chomsky oh, and and yeah. Daly, right? They said it's not that the New York Times says you cannot write certain things. It's that you don't get the job at the New York Times unless you're already inclined to be a certain kind of writer. And although sometimes you know, the New York Times does say that you can't write certain things, but <laughs> of course, you're right. Yes, right. But yes, why, it is also a more Chris subtle Hedges. sort of thing. Yes. yes, that's why Chris Hedges lost his job, right? Yeah, outright. But you're but the point that they're making is you don't you don't have to have overt censorship because it's much right. better if people self censor and mm-hmm. think that they're just pursuing what they want. But then you know, there's this deep thing that we. Uh, you know, this, this, if you think about what, what are some good arguments for universal basic income and for changing the way we do funding, these are really good ones. And here, again, I want to emphasize, maybe I'll put a link to Hasek Chang talks about this, too. Where he says, we really just need to dedicate a certain percentage of funding to people who are doing things that are outside the paradigm. Otherwise, we're not going to have pluralism in science. And his argument is you need pluralism in science, just like you need biodiversity, you need intellectual diversity, and you need to have people re- researching things that don't fit mm-hmm. and and just let them and even Mackenzie Scott has been nice about this right as a kind of uh, a, a, you know, a person giving money away right and she just says look I'm not going to put strings some people have to I have to trust that you're going to go do something good and we need that because that's yeah. how the world evolves right yeah I, lo- I love that and I, I wrote about funding in my book too uh, for that reason because a lot of uh, that's something you notice quickly when you're in graduate school or you're going into scientific academia is that your research interests are going to be driven by funding. Um, and I mean, they'll explicitly tell you, you know, like you can't go into that. There's no money for that. Um, so it's not freedom of choice. It's, yeah, it's really what's practical and what's going to get funded and what's going to get funded for the foreseeable future. Um, you're supposed to like develop this ability to predict um, what direction science is going to go in. And and a lot of most of the funding in the U.S. comes from the National Science Foundation, the National Institutes for Health. But um, 
And it's not that much. Like when we would write grants, actually, this really irks me. This is like one of my one of my like pet peeves I've carried with me till now is how little science gets funded. Because after I worked, um, after I did my postdoc, I went to work at UCLA with their startups and with their venture capital team. And I was appalled that like in science, when you get a $100,000 grant, that's considered a lot of money. If you get like a million dollar grant, that's like, oh my God, like you freaking made it. Um, and these like 22 year olds would come in at UCLA and get their startup, which was like the dumbest idea. They would get like $5 million off the bat. And I was just like, this is, this is the society that we live in. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like yeah. this is insanity. Um, <laughs> and it still pisses me off because yeah, like science funding is so hard to come by and it comes with all the strings, hundred thousand dollars, 65% of it goes to the university. So really you get, you know, not that much money. That's why grad students don't get paid. It's, it's a really terrible economic model. And um, yeah, I, I, I try to advocate for bigger amounts of funding for science and unrestricted. Just let people explore. It's too, it's really unideal the way science gets, at least in America. I don't even know how it is, how it is elsewhere, but I'm sure it's similar. Yeah, it's not good here. And the thing is that it's it's part of the, the, the dominant culture's vibe that we don't... You can see this over the big hullabaloo over student loans. This idea that it's somehow a bad thing if I pay for your child to go to school and they want to study romance languages. And, you know, no, you should you should have to pay for that. But just have this the, the completely wrong idea that somehow a culture can survive even if education isn't central to its to its existence and, and that it's not a, a public good and of course that happened in california in the uc system with reagan and but it's just just general theme that we are unwilling to invest in education and see it as central to a culture's survival and yet we're willing to to send money into startups it's really remarkable. And the irony there, too, is that the scientists are forced to be on shoestring budgets, but the startups couldn't function if it weren't for public funding going into developing the actual technology that most of them are drawing from in the first place. So, I mean, yes, it's not to say they don't invent things, but they're drawing on all of this stuff that has ultimately been publicly funded. I mean, I don't think that's – I think these are very – fitting things in the notion of if people only knew. If people only knew how, what, how important education truly is and how most of the things that the capitalists are making money off of came from your investment, you might ask them to invest in other things that would be more helpful to you in your life and better for the world that we, that we share. There, too, it's intention, right? I mean, I don't know how much of this is coming up for you. I mean, this political dimension, are you, are you, maybe you're not thinking too much about it, Sharon, in your work with intention. But it's such a profound social issue. It's not just like law of attraction. If I have intention, then I can get a Ferrari. But what, are, am I going to have a livable world? I would have to have some intention that the world that we're furthering the conditions of life. You know, it can't be that I just law of attract my Ferrari and then the conditions of life will take care of themselves. We're not seeing it as a cultural problem. I don't know. Yeah. Well, so this actually connects to something that it's slightly different that I wanted to talk about. Um, but when we were talking about if people only knew, on the one hand, there's, well, if people only knew all of this evidence for uh, side phenomena, spiritual phenomena. But on the other hand, I think that the, the fact that we don't have a mainstream conversation about the, about this leads people not to understand how 
nuanced and subtle psi phenomena are. So, so even once, once people may become convinced that psi phenomena are real, they can still have this very naive understanding of what that means. And they can think that, yeah, that, um, yeah, the, the law of attraction. So if I, if I figure out how to use it right, then all of my problems will be solved. Like psi means that, you know, everything can be, you know, hunky dory 100% of the time in my life. And if it's not that I'm doing it wrong. Um, I think if we had a more general cultural conversation about this and an, an awareness of how phenomena really operate, we would understand that they are, they don't work on command in that way they're they're much more living and responsive um much more like biological phenomena and psychological phenomena than they are like even like you know quantum physics um and i certainly saw this in researching coincidence and synchronicity, you know, there are, there's so many books out there about that, you know, so if somebody just wants to find out more about it, they go out and, you know, read the first coincidence book that they find, they might have this idea that, oh, well, if I just, you know, watch for the coincidences, then I'll always know what to do in my life. And so one of the things that I really tried to do in my book is to provide examples of people who, you know, thought that they were following the coincidences, and then things fell apart, or things went really badly for them, because of the choices that they made, thinking they were doing what the signs were telling them to do. Um, so I would like to have that more careful conversation to say, okay, well, what can we really learn from Sci-Phenomic? Can, you know, yes, we have this ability to, you know, maybe see some events that are going to happen in the future, but how does that really help? How do we actually change our decision-making based on that should we change our decision making based on things that we seem to precognize and this goes back to you know what you were saying nikos about you know the difference between knowledge and wisdom and and you can't just know the truth about something that knowing the truth about it ultimately means knowing how to use that information what is it that you're going to try to do with that information and we have very little discussion at least at least in the coincidence and synchronicity literature there's very little discussion of of how we actually use this in our life. Um, That's so I, important. I love that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Please go. I I think it's beautiful. Uh, no, I get asked that question a lot. Um, how how do you use this in your in your life now? And I don't I don't <laughs> not that I have an answer, but um, but I've thought about it a lot. Yeah, because it is like, well, if you have I mean, I don't have, yeah, I don't have the answer yet, but I, I do think. Well, I don't think there is yeah. the answer, so <laughs> yeah. that's perfectly okay. But it's there's hard. guidance from the wisdom traditions. This is what's so important is because the wisdom traditions say, yes, but you, in order to answer that question, you have to answer, how do you use your life? What's the use of a human being? What's the use mm -hmm. of a life? And this this shows you how it, the, the issue of intention is fully integrated with lifestyle, livelihood, your vision of reality, and how we are, if we're ecological beings, if that is your vision of reality, well, this all is happening because we're relational, then it has to be that I have to think in those relational terms in ter as far as how to use it. 
I have to know what I am and how to use myself skillfully in the world to understand then how this stuff gets integrated. And it's like the difference between we're talking about a developmental shift in consciousness. And that we would have to begin to manifest a different style of consciousness, one that would allow us to work with this sort of different way of knowing and work with these phenomena. As you say, they're subtle. So if you're living in a small community where everyone's working with their dreams and everyone's open to these sorts of things, then the whole community is strengthened. It's like a forest, right? If you if you thin the forest, it turns out that, that each tree is like weakened a little bit. <laughs> and that's a, it's a paradoxical thing that a denser forest is more healthy because the trees cooperate. They know how to how to take care of each other. And it's the same thing. If, if you begin to shift the culture and you have a community that can work this way, then there's far more resilience in the individuals and in the community itself and vitalizing potentials that then open up. People begin to sense what to do with it or how to, do, how to work with it. And we have some anthropological evidence for that, where anthropologists could see these different developmental possibilities for human beings. I can share some of that with you if you're interested in looking at it. Richard Sorensen is a big influence for me because he, he really, really, for him, it was a shock to see how differently consciousness could develop, the ontogeny, we could say, of consciousness. And that you just are left with, with certain possibilities not available to you. And his thing was, I think, something echoed in a lot of wisdom traditions and indigenous traditions that the dominant culture doesn't produce adults. And here he was, an adult with a PhD, and he goes to stay with this indigenous group. And this was at a time he said, look, I was seeing one of the last groups that was really still functioning in, in, in a traditional way. And he, he's an adult with a PhD, and he was put with the children. And he said it was perfectly appropriate. I wasn't an adult in their world. And it's not because I couldn't start a fire with sticks. It's just I didn't have the emotional and cognitive capacities that these people had developed. So I think that ontogeny is really important. We, we, are at, we, we don't know in part because we'd have to get there. We'd have to agree that, okay, reality is more magical than we thought. Let's start practicing in a way that honors our potentials. Like, as Jeff Kripa would put it, that we're super we have superpowers. I mean, so then you have to go to the X-Men school and you have to start to learn, right? Because isn't that the theme that we get? The X-Men find out, look, someone can teach you how to use these powers. You don't have to be afraid of yourself. You don't have to be, but you have, you have to come so we can teach you how to use it in a good way. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. Go ahead. I, don't know. I was just thinking, um, I was speaking to somebody which one of my friends who's 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 it, he he actually says that like, he's like I want I want the the superpowers he's like but then I'm aware that I want the superpowers and then he's like I don't think I should have them <laughs> like well at least you're aware of that it's interesting but a lot of people aren't but there is a lot of wisdom right that you need for this because um it it I was going to say this earlier. So it's like when, when you're, let's say going to get psychic readings, like I was, um, or you have the capacity yourself. Um, and let's say you have the opportunity to make a different decision. Um, you do have to have the, the wisdom to step back and, and think, well, maybe this could be good for me. Like it might not be a pleasant thing, right? Like then that's what a lot of our life experiences turn out to be, right? Like, it's horrible things that happen to us, but like propel us in our evolution of as a person, you know, like our character development, um, our resilience, our strength. And, you know, like 
you don't, I don't not, I look back on the, you know, things that I went through and I'm grateful to where they brought me. I may not be grateful per se for having to have gone through them, <laughs> but <clears throat> yeah. And it's like, if someone gave me the opportunity to skip it, I wouldn't now, you know, because of where it brought me. So, and that, that yeah, like all of that takes wisdom. And it's um, that same friend always says, he's like, in term, he doesn't like to manifest on purpose either. Cause he's like, I always think, am I smarter than the universe? I'm not like, I'm probably not. <laughs> oh, Socrates yeah. would like that attitude. Don't yeah. you think Sharon? <laughs> yeah. I, I, that's exactly the feeling that I have about it. Cause I mean, I, I can see through all of my research, how powerful, yeah, focused intention is. But yeah, when I think about it, I'm like, well, yeah, who am I to decide what I should like? Why should I try to overpower, you know, the natural um, organic forces of the universe that are going to bring me what I need anyway? Why should I try to direct them in one specific way that that might not be as valuable to me in the long run? Um, so I do find that the more I know about this, the more I just kind of take a hands off approach. I'm, I'm not trying to control things. I'm just I'm a little bit. I'm more relaxed and just accepting what what comes my way. But where I do find, I find that coincidence and synchronicity uh, helps develop that that wisdom, actually, that you were talking about, Nikos. I think that being confronted with events where you see an event in your life that's that's um, mirroring back to you, you know, something that you desired very strongly, or or maybe it's mirroring back to you something that you didn't want, but is, is you know, confronting you uh, in a very improbable way. That when that happens, it forces you to look at yourself in a deeper way than you have before. And for me, often coincidences have helped me by sort of manifesting in the physical world some some deep emotion that I was having that I was repressing and wasn't willing to acknowledge or act on. And once it starts to manifest itself in the physical world, me being the very empirically minded person that I am, that I'm like, okay, now I have to take this seriously. And I see that I, I see that I have to take those emotions seriously and and take my intuition seriously. So I, I think of synchronicity as this tool that 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 helps a very outward empirically focused person turn inward and hmm. and and start developing that deeper personal wisdom and so it's not the, the signs don't tell you what to do um if you think that they are telling you what to do you're not under you're you're not understanding what's happening but they're providing an environment in which you yourself are better able to reflect on what deep down inside, you know, you should do, you can connect with your inner wisdom more clearly. Yeah, it, in a way it's both because the, it, it teaches the inwardly focused person to also see outward. In other words, it ruptures the barrier, it <laughs> mm -hmm. ruptures the duality, but it's, it is very important. And, and Pauli talked about it in terms of conscious development. His experience was that synchronicities increase as you're trying to work on your consciousness and evolve. And of course, Jung, I think you're touching on Jung's famous line that when an inner conflict is not made conscious, it appears in the outside mm -hmm. world as fate. Yeah. 
So he's saying that it is like, but I, and I think of this all as the proprioception of the soul, that, that this, it's the way that the soul is telling us that when, when the fox crosses your path, that is, that is you feeling your way along. And sometimes I think you, you do get information that's helpful about, well, wait, I, I, I shouldn't take this path, right? I mean, you get the sense, wait, this is the wrong path, or it's the right path. But you're right, other times, it's just like Sophia is winking at us and saying, I love you, sweetie. No, I mean, (laughs) I I do feel like it's, it's giving you information. But the the only way you can get that information is by filtering what happens through your intuition. So Mm -hmm. uh, like, there's this story that um, Alan Vaughn, who's a a famous psychic, he talked about in one of his books, where uh, he had been on some radio show, I think, and like, had he had said something that he wasn't sure if he wanted on the air or not or whatever. And so um, later on, he's walking down the street in New York city, like pondering this thing. And he crosses um, or he comes across a pen that has the name of uh, the call letters of the radio station on it, just like lying on the sidewalk. And so he says, I saw the pen and I knew that I needed to tell them to take it off the air. And I'm reading the story and I'm like, well, how did you know that it didn't mean, well, you should trust the radio station and allow your story to be broadcast? Like he immediately, the, the coincidence gave him an immediate knowing, but it wasn't present entirely in the external event. He had to right. connect the dots. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's your whole intelligence in a way, is the way I think of it is it's not your, I mean, it's tricky because as, as philosophers, I think we've just divided reason off like it's this, th- this other thing. And clearly, you know, like w- we didn't evolve as organisms because nature sat around reasoning in this kind of limited sense that philosophers do. It wasn't the construction or analysis of arguments, but it's some, something very holistic. And I, I somehow think that that's like, that's a moment of holistic thinking. Like, if you want to say things, I even think, of course, like, if you see a horse running, that is thinking. You think that, oh, that's a horse running. But the activity is thinking, because if you see how difficult it is, like, the ground is uneven, there's stones, and they're moving, and there's all this stuff going on, you can only say that that is the activity of thinking. And that what our culture suffers from as one one symptom is anemic thought, just patterns of thought that are repeated over and over. They're, they're fragmented and fragmenting to the world. And then this was a moment of like a holism, this whole thing coming, right, where it ruptures these barriers and says, Mm -hmm. no, the universe is fundamentally whole. And if you relax, you get released into that wholeness and you somehow kind of know what to do. The intention then becomes important because what do the wisdom traditions say? They just say, keep intending wisdom, love, and beauty. That's all. Don't worry. If you, I'm, I'm intending the job. They say, no, just keep intending wisdom, love, and beauty, and it'll be okay and stay very aware, and you will have synchronicities happening. Yeah, because you might you. intend a particular job. It turns out there's actually a job that would be way better for you out there, or maybe you shouldn't have a job at all. And so if you just <laughs> shoot directly for wisdom, love, and beauty, then you'll get there faster. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's wonderful. Well, I, we could talk for hours, and I'm, I'm so happy that uh, that we got together and that you two got connected. And this has this just been really juicy conversation. Do you have any final thoughts, Mona, you want to share before we go? Is there anything? Um, no, this has been great. I'm trying to think of theirs. That's just been, it's been great. Can't think of anything. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's good. I, I know there's so much. It's like, it's so interesting. And there's so much to talk about that often that's what you feel like. Oh my gosh. It was, it's fun. But like, what else to say? You, Sharon, you have anything else you want to say? I don't think I have anything that wouldn't launch us off into another, oh. <laughs> another hours long discussion. So I'll just, that's okay. That's yeah. beautiful. When is your book due? Yeah. 
I like the way you put it. When is it due? Because that's yes. what I feel the deadline looming over me. Uh, as we speak. Um, I'm supposed to finish writing it in February. Um, so okay. it probably will not be released upon the world for a year after that. So probably early 2025. Okay. Well, I won't wait that long to have you back. And what else are you working on right now? <laughs> Uh, that's my full-time job. I, that's it's, your full-time. It's a huge project. That's, the, that's and, your baby. Yeah. It, yeah, I, yeah. I, I feel that. That's really good. Well, if you ever want to talk intention, you know, give me a call. How about you, Mona? What are you working on? Um, I don't know. I'm actually, well, I'm working with IONS a little bit, um, mm. with Dean Radin and, um, Helena Wabe, uh, leading up their science. And I write a newsletter on psychedelics and altered states and transpersonal, um, phenomena uh and just doing interviews for the book and then i have my own uh consulting firm so i do like neuroscience science work for companies Hmm, that sounds like fun that's good stuff well good things all around and i was just really this was a lot of fun and uh thank you both for for joining us and thanks to all of you for joining us again i will put some links for what mona's working on what she's up to and and sharon's website uh, that'll be in the show notes oh and oh yes i forgot to mention yes i am doing uh, a collaborator and i are putting together to help open minds in neuroscience we are organizing this panel for alternative models of consciousness at the our annual neuroscience conference it's in november in washington dc um and we're raising money for it because we get a free room but we want to feed people and uh, pay for flights for the speakers because a lot of them don't normally come to this conference so we are raising money for that but um yeah hopefully we did it last year and we had a huge turnout we had like 50 scientists show up which we thought nobody would come at all and they were all super interested in spirituality and almost phenomena consciousness so this year we wanted to do something bigger so we're excited to kind of um i don't know help flip the the board in neuroscience wow no that's really exciting alternative so there you have it Uh, you're doing your thing yeah i'll send you the um description yeah, that's exciting. Alternative models of consciousness. That's really cool. And it's kind of like um, when Elizabeth Lloyd Mayer talks about having the little special session for the psychologists mm. and psychiatrists who who had experienced something anomalous, and then they were just flooded with all these people. Yeah, I, I've seen the crazy. It's out there. And there it is. If people only knew, if people only knew what kind of response there would be to like alternative views of what consciousness is. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing, keeping in touch with both of you thank you so much and now i will thank all of you guys out there for listening if you have thoughts or questions reflections stories to share that you think well if people only knew this thing that would be wonderful to hear you can send them in through dangerouswisdom.org we might be able to bring some of them into a future contemplation until then this is dr nikos your friendly neighborhood soul doctor reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things if people only knew that we'd have a better world so take good care of them (laughs) 